Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 340. It's titled, ESG, Climate Change, and What Should We Do as Investors? A month or so ago, I got an email from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, and she mentioned that she and her family was caught in the Oregon wildfires last September, and it was an unforgettable experience. She actually updated their disaster preparedness tools after that trip. She writes, I believe we are on the cusp of massive change in every arena I can think of, which makes it very hard to plan for the future. I remain hopeful that most of these changes will be for the best. The one change that deeply troubles me and my grown kids is climate change. The effects are accelerating and impossible to ignore. I would love to hear a podcast on investment strategies to support climate change solution technologies. I'm ready to become more aggressive in this area, but I am not sure where to start. Later, she wrote that she favored investing in baskets, so more diversified pools rather than individual companies. In some ways, climate change, ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Criteria that is used to evaluate stocks, value-based investing, impact investing, it's a little overwhelming. It's not as simple as just buying an ETF or identifying a manager. It is so much more than that. There are indeed massive changes coming. And as I thought about how to answer her question, I had to step back and put a framework together that helped me really figure out, well, should I be doing more? How will things evolve going forward? And are there opportunities there? And what are the risks? In the last few weeks, I've been reading a book by Suetsu Yanagi called The Beauty of Everyday Things. Yanagi was a Japanese art critic and philosopher, and this book was written in the 1930s. One of the chapters was on patterns, the beautiful patterns you find on everyday objects such as ceramics and textiles. He listed three criteria that are important for a beautiful pattern. Constraints. As I was pondering climate change and and how to invest in this environment, this idea of patterns and what is required for an effective and beautiful pattern really stood out. And the first thing he mentioned is utility. The pattern on a particular object needs to be there for a reason, such as the extra stitching around the collar of a jacket to protect it against wear. And so utility, the necessity, the desirability of something is important. The material involved. The pattern should be adapted based on the material used. 
The way to think about that outside of patterns is, you know, what are our current resources? And the third thing is technique. He writes, it's important that the pattern emerge naturally from the technical process. So it's part of how the object is made and the pattern is a result of that. We can think of that as our capabilities. And so when we think about how the world's going to evolve in the face of climate change and other constraints and opportunities, we'll have to focus on utility. You know, what is necessary now? What's the material? What are our current resources? What are the techniques? What are our current capabilities? The other way that has helped me think about it is to consider the stakeholders. When we look at investing, climate change, and how the world is developing, there are five key stakeholders. There's the government. There's businesses. There are asset managers, such as mutual funds, ETF sponsors, hedge funds, index shops. There's investors, including institutional investors, such as pensions and endowment funds, and individual investors. And then there are households. Each of those stakeholders have certain utility functions, things that they do. They have resources that they use. They have their capabilities. And they all interact in complex and evolving ways. Governments, for example, provide incentives and regulations. The Biden administration announced recently at an online event that featured the heads of states and cabinet ministers from over 40 countries. It was a two-day summit. The administration announced that they wanted to cut greenhouse gas emissions in the United States in half by 2030 on the way to net zero emissions in 2050. Now, that's a high bar. Now, they say they've done a bottom-up analysis. They think it could be done. But there will be regulations and subsidies, investments, the Biden infrastructure plan, for example, that will be put in place to encourage, force other stakeholders to adapt. A second stakeholder is businesses. The constraints and opportunities that businesses have that causes them to act is first, their cost of capital. Cost of capital is the weighted average of the interest rate on their debt and the implied expected return that's priced into their stocks. The cost of capital is used when a company decides what it wants to invest in, what projects, and that project has to exceed the cost of capital. Some companies have very low cost of capital and others have higher cost of capital. One of the things that could evolve, and certainly companies are aware of that, is if companies don't make changes to either take advantage of opportunities that arise out of climate change or protect against the risk that their cost of capital could increase, which will make it more difficult to invest in profitable projects going forward. Businesses are also very concerned about their reputation, their brand reputation. Are they taking actions? to reduce their emissions, to be more sustainable. Businesses are very sensitive to other costs. Will their cost of business be higher due to perhaps new regulations that are put in place to fight climate change? There's another push for businesses to do more disclosure regarding their carbon footprints. 
The CDP is a not-for-profit charity that runs a global disclosure system for investors, companies, and cities and states to report their environmental impact. They had over 10,000 companies and cities and other entities report in the last year. And there's definitely some pressure to do that. Foremost, because reporting and actually recognizing what is your footprint is a good benchmark to start taking actions. Businesses need to look long-term so that they can be sustainable. Back in 2004, the German Forum Sustainable Investments and Corporate Responsibility Interface Center hosted a workshop of different asset managers and other participants, and the theme was to define and understand sustainable investments. What does it mean to invest sustainably? And they came up with what is known as the Darmstadt definition of sustainable investments. Foremost, from an economic perspective, something is sustainable if the profits are based on long-term production and investment strategy. So the the key is that it's long-term rather than short-term profit maximization. And those profits need to actually create real value. So not threaten basic needs like water supplies, not be based on corruption. The definition goes on to say from an ecological perspective, sustainable investments lead to an increase in productivity and resource productivity. So more use of renewable resources, recycling and reuse of used material and substances, an understanding of the impact and trying to reduce the impact on local ecological systems. They look at it from the lens of a social and cultural perspective. Sustainable investments from that realm are consistent with the development of human capital, providing employment, education, upgrading skills, development of social capital, equity, fairness, treatment of minorities without discrimination. So those were the lenses, an ecological lens, a social and cultural perspective, and then an economic perspective, making sure that the profits are generated in a way that's fair and indeed sustainable. Now, hopefully more and more businesses are looking at the world through those type of lenses because their reputations are at stake and because other stakeholders, such as asset managers, are requiring it. Asset managers are also aware of long-term opportunities and are very focused on their reputations. There was a survey done by Morgan Stanley of 110 asset owners, so institutional investors that are hiring asset managers. And 35% of them see themselves allocating only to managers that have formal ESG policies. And one in five already don't hire a manager that don't look at sustainability issues. The survey was of staff of billion-dollar-plus pension funds and endowments in other institutions in North America, Europe, and Asia. 42% said that they would require a formal sustainable investment policy within two years. And 39% said ESG would be a must-have within five years. Audrey Choi, who's CEO for the Morgan Stanley Institute for Sustainable Investing, said... These results provide an additional proof point that sustainable investing has become table stakes. That's the minimum threshold. Asset managers, more and more, will be required to have a sustainable 
lens when making investments in companies and engaging with companies and asking them about their sustainable business practices. That puts pressure on companies to adopt a similar lens. These are requirements. These are table stakes. But there's also opportunity. About 24% of carbon in the world is created through power generation. When we look at what has evolved over the last several decades, offshore wind, onshore wind, solar panels, continued use of hydroelectric, biogas, electrolysis, better battery storage, and other technologies. We're seeing the energy transition. It is happening. The cost of solar and wind has collapsed over the past decade. 80% drop in cost for solar, 60% for wind. The cost of lithium-ion batteries has fallen 85% in the past decade. So the ability to store renewable energy in a battery form has dropped. And that will dramatically change how businesses operate. Adair Turner, the economist, points out in a speech he gave last year that a typical internal combustion engine, that only about 20% of the chemical energy in petroleum ends up as kinetic energy to push the car forward. The rest is wasted as heat, whereas an electric engine turns 90% of the battery energy into kinetic energy, and less than 10% is wasted as heat. That's a dramatic difference. One of the Biden administration's initiative is to push car manufacturers to only make electric. That's going to happen. Maybe there'll be additional government mandates, but the efficiency of electric vehicles, once the cost gets lower than traditional internal combustion engines, there will be mass adoption. And businesses investing sustainably are looking at all those opportunities and will naturally gravitate to those. But there's all these interactions among the stakeholders. The asset managers put pressure on businesses. The government puts pressure. The businesses, they adapt to opportunities. And then we have investors that make decisions based on their values, based on performance expectations. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades my first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. There's a book coming out in two weeks that I'm really excited about. It's Activate Your Money, Invest to Grow Your Wealth, and Build a Better World. The author is Janine Furpo. I've known her for several years now. She's been a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. She spent 35 years in technology and international development. She concluded her career working for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where she focused on impact investments to bring poor people out of poverty. Her book is a guide to investing with our values. She had one graphic in there that I really liked that defined what values-aligned investing is. And the first level is just not to do harm, to exclude companies that are doing harm. So negative screens, I don't want to own this. Level two would be to benefit stakeholders. So looking at ESG scorings and deciding. And level three, which is what the plus member I mentioned that kicked off this episode was seeking, is to develop solutions, include companies that are creating new solutions to meet climate change and other risks. But as investors, we can choose to allocate to ESG funds that do that type of screening, but also emerging technology funds that are seeking out companies that will take advantage of the opportunities to fight climate change and other evolving areas. Investors interact with asset managers in order to implement those values. And there's different levels that asset managers can be involved within the sustainable investment landscape. There are thematic funds, such as clean tech funds. There are ESG funds that are seeking companies or stocks that meet certain environmental, social, and governance criteria. There are funds that just seek to exclude particular holdings, so a negative criteria. There are asset managers that integrate ESG aspects into how they're analyzing companies. So looking at the long-term risk and long-term opportunities and seeing if the companies are adapting based on that, using that to determine whether a particular stock is attractive or not. And then finally, asset managers, sometimes prodded by investors, can be actively engaged with management to encourage them, for example, to disclose their carbon footprint, so that it's easier to analyze and make those decisions. The final stakeholder is households, individuals, making decisions based on 
their values, making decisions based on what things cost, based on how convenient it is. A listener sent me a podcast by Sam Harris where he interviewed Bruce Friedrich and Liz Specht of the Good Food Institute. The Good Food Institute is a not-for-profit that promotes plant-based meat, dairy, and eggs, essentially meat and dairy that's grown in the lab. One of the points that Friedrich made several times is the only way that that type of food product would be adopted is if it tastes better and if it's cheaper. I had a listener write me a few weeks ago when I sort of, as he put it, threw meat under the bus. He left the IT industry and is involved in renewable livestock agriculture. He writes, alongside my typical investments, I'm investing in my health and the health of the earth, using my dollar to support regenerative agriculture practices. He pointed out that the methane released by cows, particularly those that are involved in renewable livestock agriculture, is much smaller than the amount of carbon in some of our subsidized crops, wheat and corn, as well as big agriculture. It's messy. It really is. And complicated. And that's why it goes well beyond just choosing an ESG mutual fund or ETF. We have these stakeholders, households, making decisions based on their values, what things cost and their convenience. We have investors making value decisions, looking to maximize returns. We have asset managers that are looking for long-term opportunities, concerned about their reputations, their brand to attract additional assets, so they're concerned about performance. Businesses are also brand-aware concerned about their reputation, worried about higher cost, cognizant of their cost of capital as they seek other projects, and they're very focused on opportunities. And then you have governments that provide incentives and regulations. All of these work together and will lead to some outcome, hopefully a more sustainable planet where global warming will be brought under control. But there will be a dance among all these stakeholders. Things will evolve. There will be things that we can't even foresee as they all interact together. When we think about how do we invest in this environment, we certainly can choose an ESG mutual fund or ETF. We can focus on clean energy funds, renewable energy funds or ETFs, emerging technology funds. I don't have the answer for which is the right one. I mean, I've looked at them. I've screened. Some of them have had extremely high performance over the past year, which always concerns me how much hype is priced in to these particular strategies. Another option is to actually look at their holdings and perhaps structure your own portfolio out of individual securities that you research that you think are attractive. You can allocate to an active fund that's trying to ferret out some of these opportunities. Ultimately, as these different stakeholders interact, companies that are successful in thriving in a lower emissions world will have a higher weight in the indices, while those that have not adapted as well will have a lower weight. Their stocks won't do as well. 
Maybe that's naive on my part because I'll admit I have not gone out and invested in ESG funds, funds that just are excluding particular holdings because these forces seem so much larger than that. I'd rather focus on what changes can I make in my own life? What signal am I sending based on my consumption patterns? Now, I own some renewable energy investments, and as I've prepared for this episode, and in the last few weeks, we've been looking at the expected returns for different asset classes over the next decade. One of those asset classes is master limited partnerships, energy infrastructure, pipelines and storage units for oil and natural gas. And as I look out the next decade, and there aren't that many MLPs left, there's only about 30, I'm not sure what the performance will be. We have lowered our assumptions for the asset class for the next decade because the dividend yield has fallen. We're assuming that the dividends are not going to increase, though it's about an 8.5% dividend yield. We could see more dividend cuts. But I still have a small percentage of my portfolio in MLPs. I will probably sell those in the coming weeks. They have rebounded this year of about 30%. But in some ways, it just, it's not the direction I want my portfolio to go. Each of us as individuals have to decide how active do we want to be in either excluding certain companies or finding opportunities in companies that align with our values. Janine's Furpo's book, Activate Your Money, can help with that in making those decisions because she's kind of gone through that process over the past decade or so because she wanted how she invested to be aligned with her values. I wish I had a simple answer for this member that was seeking to invest in baskets of securities that are positioned to benefit from climate change actions. There's certainly ETFs out there, but I think it goes beyond that because of how these different forces are interacting. The government, business, asset managers, investors, and households, each with their own motivations and incentives, looking at the opportunity, looking at the risk, looking at their cost, and they'll all interact. And ultimately, as his member says, hopefully these changes will be for the best, that we will act in time to prevent a catastrophe, that things will work out that technology will continue to evolve. Certainly, you're seeing it in the energy space. There's more work to be done in agriculture and some of these other areas. But I'm hopeful that things will get better, even though nobody really knows the path that it will take. But we'll see. That's episode 340. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, there's two ways I can help. First, consider signing up for my weekly email newsletters, The Insider's Guide. It's where I'll share with you the links to that week's podcast episode and introduction on what this show's about, an essay on money, investing in the economy, and other valuable resources. It's released the day the podcast is released, and you can sign up for that newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. A second way I can help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is a community of serious-minded investors seeking to build out institutional quality investment portfolios to help 
them reach their retirement goal or if they are already retired to manage their assets in retirement. There are portfolio building tools, video lessons on different asset classes. There are asset allocation models to help you build out an asset mix. There are model portfolios to jumpstart your investing so you can look at specific ETFs and funds. There's a member forum so you can interact with other members. And there's a premium podcast episode just for Plus members where I answer questions from members on all aspects of investing. Go ahead and check out Money for the Rest of Us Plus. We'd love to have you as a member of our community. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>